You're going to be like shooting guns and shit. Yeah. I want to kill a deer. I mean, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with killing animal. If you eat them, I'm going to save the bones for soup and try and use as much as I can. The hide can be donated to this really nice organization that takes the hides and makes clothes or whatever out of them and gives them to needy people. And nice. so yeah, yeah. put the skull up on the uh, <laughs> wall, <laughs> bleached, of course. Yeah. And I can get you my email address if you want to use my idea for that graph video game too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a second. <laughs> Sorry, I did not get much sleep last night. Uh, welcome everyone to Pem Pem Pals Footy Goody episode five. I'm as always Alex, and I'm happy to be here with my two co-hosts. I'm Brian, uh, and I'm Ben. Um, and I think this episode is Brittle Bullets. Buri Bure. Ooh. And with us for second time, so now friend of the pod is my brother John. Hey. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, happy to have you on, especially for the symbolism. Uh, I know you've watched this before, and everyone who's in the audience knows that a big theme in this show is an older brother. But I'd be happy to tell everyone right off the bat that John is nothing like the older brother in the show. He's not absent, and he has been a positive influence I mean, in my life. He is off living in America, you know? Oh, okay. You haven't, by any chance, taken up baseball as a hobby? No, no, no baseball. I have a bat. But that's it. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, for home intrusions. Okay, yeah. Uh, what's been going on with you? Are you trying out any new life changes? Are you working on any cool games? Yeah, so I'm getting ready to move up north to Minnesota. Right now I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh, wow. To basically explore nature, go hunting, go fishing, just enjoy the outdoors for a little bit. And I'm going to take a break from game development. I may be developing an indie game on the side and then find a new adventure, probably a job. Maybe not. I don't know yet. A myriad of possibilities. I love it. Indie game development in my mind has always been like the Wild West, like this like pioneer <laughs> frontier. Yeah, 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 for sure. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. There's a lot of garbage too. So. <laughs> That's for sure. You've, I can't remember if you actually introduced us to this, but uh, you've watched FLCL before. Do you remember what your initial experience was with it when you were younger? Originally, I'd only watched like the first two episodes. I've never finished the series. I still haven't seen episode six. And when I first saw it, I was like, what the hell is this? And I still don't know. Like, it's just bananas. Um, <laughs> it's highly entertaining. I love the art style. The animation looks like they spared no budget. It's wonderful, and it's very uplifting and fun. But as far as plot goes, I still have no idea what's going on. I've got a very similar experience. I've also not seen the final episode. Uh, I only saw this week's episode this week. And uh, five, six of the way through the series, I'm still trying to figure out what this thing is. Right. Assessing the surrealism. Hopefully our next guest has only watched the final two episodes and we can have like the full <laughs> trifecta. All right. Without further ado, brittle bullets. Talk when we're surrounded. It's a full scale attack. They've got snipers too. Snipers are always so annoying, you know? If we move, they'll fire. But we've got to do something. You're right. I'll draw their fire. It's dangerous, so... That's the idea! Huh? This is your final battle. Go and die to prove that you never <laughs> this, this is bad! He's headed for the plant! He's going to activate it! 
What's that? It's... It's Adamus! Gibson EB-0! 1961 model! Hmm. Interesting. What's interesting? Haruko's uh, thing is she's looking for Adamusk. And she's already seen Conti. She's seen Conti red and blue, but it's a uh, a behavior or something that is what makes her recognize Atomisk. It's the guitar, I think. Okay. The Gibson EB0 1961 post remodel. So Atomisk is the one who wields that instrument? Yes. So I'm going to be fixated on themes of acceptance and rejection. I love your angles. And I also don't like Mamimi anymore. <laughs> We're going to have an argument about that. That's okay. good. My first question to everyone was, what's peon? It's a sound effect. Is that an onomatopoeia? Yeah, for um, like a cute jumping sound effect. Uh, frogs or bunnies. Oh. Uh, the daikon mascot is like a playboy bunny. And during the river scene, there was a little karopi frog in the background when they were first talking about peon. My, my dictionary app says yeah jumping boing and then also used at sentence end to affect cuteness so I guess mm. that's, a, that's an accepted use of it so you can just be like where are you pion i mean i've i've heard something similar used like that but not not the word pion but like if uh, a proud person that's giving tonight's dinner like does this really special cute presentation they put it down and go chan I'm sure it's probably regional, though. Pion is probably similar one. to like, ta-da! Yeah. I have a, I have a indie game idea that I'll pitch you, and then I'm sure it's one of those things where, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. Maybe. The hard part's actually doing it. Yeah, it all depends on how hard the idea is and how much art is required, right? Do you want to pitch it now, or do you want to save that for later? Uh, I'll, I'll do it right now, just the, the super short version. It's like kind of like a strategy RPG sort of thing, but it's like a graph and then like different weapons or different like graphing functions. So it's like kind of like teach maybe, you know, like algebra through trig by having kind of like these different challenges that you need to understand like different things to defeat the different enemies. Yeah, that's really cool. I love it. What would you call it? Uh, Math monsters. I feel like in my head it's like graph PG, but <laughs> oh. <laughs> you can probably come up with a better name than that. Graph PG is pretty good. So would you be able to learn higher math through this? I, I think like that would be like the goal would be that someone, I, I think the idea would be like you try to like not really like other than the actual algebraic functions, you'd never mention the word math. <laughs> you just like make it like kind of like the magic system or something like that. Try to really sneak it in there. I love it. Great idea. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, let's go. Episode starts and we get kind of a cold open on the episode where Nauta and Haruko are already teamed up. They're like lying low in the tall grass with these. I mean, we don't know that they are presumably airsoft guns at that point. They look like, or at least Nauta looks like he's dual wielding real Uzis. Nauta says, they've got us pinned down. Uh, I'll create a diversion 
And Haruko says, yes, go and prove your love for me. This is your final mission. (laughs) Seems like they're not on the same page. But that is quickly overtaken by uh, Nauta and the grandfather uh, sitting watching a, I guess it's supposed to be a John Woo film. Yeah, I think it's a John Woo film. The They call them pigeons in the dub. I think they were called doves in the sub. But anyway, John Woo puts doves in all his movies. So yeah, I guess I was thinking we had a scene like this in Evangelion. We had like a little like airsoft thing at the beginning of one of the episodes. And then that also kind of comes up in Otaku no Video. So I don't know if there's just kind of someone on the Gynex staff who's like really into this stuff or that there was just kind of like a general overlap with people who are big fans of anime and, and people who played airsoft and stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the gun otakus. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Brian just shared this crazy picture of a armory of airsoft guns. Yeah, so these, these are Japanese produced airsoft guns. So as John was saying, I did have a recollection that there was like an airsoft otaku community in Japan that were like hyper realistic weapons. Cause I remember seeing it in things like Hobby Japan. Yeah, and it's one of the parts of otaku culture that's kind of made fun of, or at least that's the way it seemed in Otaku No Video uh, and in Neon Genesis, because like <laughs> Kensuke is off by himself. Like he doesn't even have someone to play with, but like he has his guns and soldier outfit and he has fun. <laughs> He's like the last otaku after the uh... second impact. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping that flame lit. So their John Woo watching party is cut short by Kamon bursting through the wall from like an upper room. And then we see a cartoon style spring loaded boxing glove coming straight out of Haruko and Kamon is on the ground, just very damaged. I feel like that's Haruko's like violent chastity belt. <laughs> that's what it seemed like it was coming out of. She really embodied like the Bugs Bunny agent of chaos in this episode. <laughs> What's up, Doc? Yeah, she takes on many forms. Broke a lot of laws of physics mm. in this one. And animation, right? Mm. I like, like we get a bunch of different animation style switches, but she does the most things. So Kamon is just trying to get with her, right? He's trying to like follow up from the last episode when they had had an almost romantic relationship or physical relationship, but then it turned out it wasn't actually him, right? It was the robot. Yeah. And Kamon never actually got intimate with her. Okay. Um, you, you had mentioned that while we were watching it, Brian, Ralph Baskey. Hi, this is future editing, Alex. But just for reference, the name is Bakshi, B-A-K-S-H-I. Yeah. In kind of one of these scenes where, um, you know, she got an Elvis pompadour and, and it was doing stuff. I'm, I'm not familiar with that name. What was his early stuff? I mean, he's known mostly now for like Cool World. Noids do not have sex with doodles. It's the oldest law in Cool World. John, you got to know. <laughs> I'm trying to blank. You guys remember Fritz the Cat. They've killed Fritz! They've killed Fritz! Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was this weird one from like the 70s, I think. It had like uh, guitars and stuff. Rock and roll. American rock or rock and roll? Oh, Something American like pop? Was that the one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just like the cartoonish way of like miming sexuality. It's like super exaggerated and almost nerdy. You know what I mean? Uh, and like when she's talking to the cat <laughs> to give her field report or whatever, 
it's a lot of hip wiggling, which is supposed to telegraph sexuality, but it's so goofy in a, <laughs> it just really yeah. felt like Ralph yeah. Baskey, like a reference. Oh, wait, is he the director of Wizards? Yes. Is that Wizards? Yeah, okay. yeah the only thing I remember from Wizards was a soldier saying, Fritz, they've killed Fritz. Oh <laughs> I knew Fritz the cat and I thought that the director of Wizards was referencing someone else's work, but I guess he's just referencing his own work. That's awesome. Oh yeah, and then in that uh, in that sequence where she's talking about Haruko's one millisecond mastered the guitar class, she named several bands, and now to correctly observe that one of those bands doesn't fit. Like she mentions Richard Cheese, who's not actually a grunge artist. He like does lounge covers of rock songs. Oh, I heard Richard James, and I was thinking of Apex Twin. <laughs> I don't know. If you've never checked out Richard Cheese, fascinating stuff. Uh, a little vapid, but... Uh, so is Aphex Twin. And then she mentions, as she spins her guitar to become a helicopter, she also mentions the starting points of McCartney and Hendrix, again, reinforcing this left-handed theme, because uh, they're both legendary left-handed guitarists, right? Uh, and are they both specifically people who played a right-handed guitar? They restrung it so that they could play it left-handed? Uh, Hendrix, yeah. I don't know about McCartney. Okay. I'm pretty sure McCartney. Okay. So between the two of us. Uh, so I think after that, we go to the dual scene where we're kind of back out on that river bed. Oh, let, before we go there, just, just to highlight the absurd. The dad walks in on the housekeeper straddling his son like bare ass in a kiss and he blames his son he's like now you have been you. up here doing perverted things, perverted yeah. things. you pick secrets from me <laughs> he reverts in this scene i guess he wasn't in the previous scene but in this scene they call attention to it um he reverts to an earlier style of anime dress he's dressed like lupin the third right <laughs> Right. Not only Lupin the Third, but the original, the red jacket costume, as opposed to the more popular Castle of Cagliostro mm -hmm. costume that Miyazaki popularized. Like we cut you off a little bit, Brian. So just the social reaction is a departure from reality. And then it's accented again by the visuals. You know, Haruko goes back into this Bugs Bunny uh, manifestation, shooting the boxing glove again out of her crotch. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, that's not something Bugs Bunny would have done, but it's the spirit. <laughs> well, he would actually, uh, uh, I don't know how common it was, but at least one cartoon I've seen, he dresses up like a female, seduces someone, and then as they're going in for a kiss, smashes them on the head. That's a, a scene a lot of um, uh, furries self-report as like discovering their, their kick, kink fetish or whatever mm. interesting okay sorry and then ben yeah then we go down to the river because uh came on challenges now to, to a duel <laughs> and, and for some reason it turns into a two-on-two duel so now it's now and haruko against uh Kaman and kanti uh, setting up the scene haruko's provocation in the bedroom is that the first time we see the gun cocking oh yeah I think you're right. I don't remember seeing it beforehand. I mean, that's where it comes at. Mm -hmm. I think the first time in this episode, we've seen it in one of the the previous episodes. Um, I but, think in that same context of like kind of like pushing his head forward towards a kiss or something like that. Mm -hmm. And John, what did you have something? Oh, I was going to say that Kamon and Canty are both... They both put on outfits, like... Yeah, like cosplaying? Yeah, yeah. Like, Kamon dresses up like 
brown shirt Nazi guy. And then what's his name looks like Rambo. I couldn't decide if he was like Rambo or Clint Eastwood. Cause like Clint Eastwood always would wear those ponchos and those old Westerns and like, but he's got like the Rambo bandana and Rambo wears a poncho in one of the Rambos. Oh yeah. Uh, maybe it's evocative of both, but the uh, bandana I think is more around like his, where his mouth would be. It's kind of hard to <laughs> place it, right? Because he has this <laughs> blank face. Right. But yeah, I, I didn't catch him as uh, it does look like Clint Eastwood in like those old uh, Westerns. Yeah. 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 Like fistful of dollars or whatever. Man with no name. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's this weird little shot. So Haruko uh, right before they start fighting, she turns into a snake-like creature. For a split second, she looks exactly like Plastic Man from uh, DC Comics and just like smothers Nauta as he's trying to come up with a plan. Very unhelpful. She's trying to provoke the uh, no energy, right? Yeah, and so I guess while this duel is going on, then we have um, a couple of spectators. So Mamimi is watching from the, the top of the bridge, but we also have uh, Kitsurubami, mm-hmm. you know, who shows up. She's talking on the phone with uh, Amaro, and that's a, a very interesting sequence where then we, we jump away for a second to see him uh, getting his haircut in uh, South Park animation style with with his eyebrows very explicitly being Nori Seaweed in that shot. And so then she kind of enters the fray, or I guess she's she's there trying to get an opportunity to shoot down Conti. Yeah, she's equipped with an anti-material rifle, like basically the largest firearm that a person can carry (laughs) meant to like, punch through armor and during that Amaral when he's uh getting his haircut he's talking about wanting to have a a haircut that makes him look mature and sophisticated but everything he's asking for or or putting on is supposed to be about maturity but all of his actions the way he's conducting himself is completely immature right he asks for like a candy like another kid yeah and when he, it's not in South Park uh, uh, vision, I don't know, uh, animation, he's sticking his pinky out while on the phone. And like from his perspective, I thought it was a joke about, uh, you know, being grown up and having manners. But from our perspective, I thought it was just another penis joke. I couldn't place the anime style they were aping either. It was familiar to me, but uh, it eludes me. Same, same. I definitely thought it was a different style. You're saying before it uh, switches into the South Park mode, just already yeah. while he's getting his hair cut, it, it looks like yeah. something. It was like not quite mm-hmm. Hanna-Barbera, but something. Yeah. And uh, Kitsurubami reports to him that, that it's blue. Blue! 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 Definitely not red. He's talking about Conti, that Conti's not in his uh, ascended red form, but also another throwback to because they're like parody of Nerve from Evangelion. She's also making a joke about patterns of angels versus humans. An angel comes down with a blue pattern and then she I think she just fires, right? Like she, uh, Conti and uh, now to get into a gun struggle they're both firing at each other point blank range yeah uh it's very comical and then all of a sudden these large explosive rounds start hitting conti and naucha just thinks nothing of it he's like yeah i'm doing so well (laughs) i love they're having an airsoft battle and there's a sniper shooting live rounds at them in the middle of an airsoft battle it's amazing (laughs) yeah i guess that, that was also a place where the uh the sub and like dub 
kind of like diverged quite a bit. Uh, I guess in the subversion or the original Japanese, there's this like joke about writing kanji and saba, like a mackerel, basically, like, you know, you write fish and then blue, and, and they're having an argument about that. And then that just gets turned into this argument about cyborgs versus robots. I always like struggle with how I feel about stuff like that. You you do kind of get it from the sub, but you know, it, it's definitely hard to translate. So I can see why they just decided to to stick in a completely separate joke. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt the joke after watching the sub like a couple of times, I felt the American or the dub joke was much better. It's like, yeah. I don't understand kanji at all. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it definitely tracked to us. And uh, this was the first time I actually parsed out the joke as we were watching it uh she yells blue every time she fires the rifle and then she yells cobalt blue and then finally if seven of nine needs a side what do you have cyborg <laughs> so stupid. it's so awesome <laughs> it is pretty awesome star trek everywhere. this creates kind of a geek crisis for me because i usually prefer the subtitled but having to have the joke explained in the sub, it's just not funny. Like I get yeah. it. She's shooting at a blue target and they're at a riverbank where there's fish I'm like, Oh, huh? But <laughs> like the, the tub joke just sticks to the landing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, highlighting just the care, the, the talent, the attention to detail that this dub received oh, yeah. uh, in comparison to most or all dub work that had been done in the past, like heavy, heavy localization. Like we want to not just translate the words, we want to translate the meaning. We want to translate the cultural aspects of this. For sure. And then we get more audience members, right? Nina Mori, Masamune, and Gaku show up in a... I love those. How come we don't have those in America? The three-wheeled trucks? I don't know. Great question. There are a lot more strange little like trucks and industrial vehicles. I feel like, yeah, like everywhere outside of the US. Yeah, because we had to be the hegemony. We had to like standardize everything. We're like, no, 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 four wheels. Everything has two or four wheels, okay? I'd assume it's a space issue for Japan. There are a lot of narrower roads and roads that have to share real estate with like bike lanes and sidewalks. Yeah, I think like Europe too, you know, just like a lot of older cities that weren't really designed for cars. Oh, so on like a three-wheeler, you could have the whole chassis be narrower because you only have to fit a driver? Maybe like make tight turns into little alleyways and stuff like that. Yeah, my uncle Hmm. had a construction company in Higashimurama and his like main work truck was quite a bit narrower. I mean, I sat in the cab with him and we were like shoulder to shoulder in that thing. Wow. Was it two wheels in the front? Or yeah, it was two wheels, but like significantly narrower than a traditional Western work vehicle. And uh, he even had these little mirrors on the front end so he could see how close he was to the corners uh, for getting into <laughs> these narrow spaces around the districts. Yeah. But so the, the kids are using it so they can drive off of the main streets yeah. and... Uh, Deliver. Yeah, delivering liquor, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but they they run into Nauta. Is is that um? So is that Nina Mori with short hair? I was trying to figure that out. Yeah, her hairstyle is pretty different. She's purple, but her accent color is usually green. And again, she gets that little uh, water pistol. It's nice. And it's again her lens to view the world through. In fact, it's like literally what she spies Mamimi through. Uh, which is, again, their class divide. Um, the two guys in the cab of the truck, Goku? 
<laughs> what's, what's his name? Gaku, Gaku and, and Masamune. Masamune or Masashi. Yeah, Masamune. Is he the one that was like kept going kissu, kissu, kissu? Smooch, smooch, smooch. Okay. See, that's funny to me. Like uh, Shiro Masamune, who did Ghost in the Shell, like the manga. Uh, he's got a reputation as kind of a cheesecake artist or etchy artist, I guess, aside from yeah. his anime and manga work. Seemed kind of funny to me that a character with his name was so obsessed with all the smoochies. <laughs> Seemed on brand. And yeah, back in the uh, the play episode, he was like doing that same thing. Mm-hmm. It's consistent for his character throughout this show. He even, I think, describes Haruko as the kissy kissy lady. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we spy Mamimi on the bridge. And then I think the next scene with Nauta is him talking to her one-on-one. Yeah. And their postures are very telling. They're both faced away from each other. Mamimi is holding both of his airsoft guns, pointing them at herself as if to fire. Like It's great characterization or symbolism, right? Because she's about to ask questions that she knows or at least thinks are going to upset her. Right. Some self-destructive behavior. Yeah. And then you said you don't like Mamimi anymore. No, I What's not. up with that, Brian? Uh, well, we're not there yet. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is at the uh, the cafe that Naota drags her to. All right. Well, I have very strong feelings, so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so in this scene, you know, we see her up on the bridge. You know, she looks kind of hurt or something like that. Um, and then she's asking Naota about basically his relationship with like Haruka, right? And kind of insisting that he does like her and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it seems like she feels like at least insecure and, and you know, maybe part of why she wanted to date now in the first place was that she thought, you know, he would be infatuated with her and that she would be kind of in control of this relationship. But now, despite that, now just hurting her and he's like getting pretty like cocky too and and you know and we have that animation like you know like she says something sort of complimentary about him saving the town and then the gun thing in the back of the head cocks and he gets kind of like full of himself and um kind of more assertive and i didn't know if that's just like a very literal pun like just with the word cocky or right so he was getting recognition and praise so haruko had just thrown herself over him and he got you know the cleavage massage on his head and his classmates are singing his praises and he blushes and there's the the cgi image of the gun cocking and it's like well for the story his no energy is getting ready to go off again but why why does that happen that stuff happens when someone is like their emotions are in a state of high arousal Mm -hmm. and now he's getting this praise and recognition that he's, I guess, wanted from the beginning. And it's, it's, it's about to set him off. Sort of like earlier in this episode, Haruko does the, the bare-ass straddle on him, and there's a provocative scene, uh, and we get that flash again of him about to go off. And, you know, Mamimi's witnessing this whole thing, which sets up our next scene with her. Yeah, so right before that happens... Conti displays his inner gentleman again, and even though Kitsurabami has been firing on him, just, you know, 
gently floats down to the river and offers her a hand up. Like she's waterlogged. She has fish in her mouth. She's not in a good place, but Kanji just wants to help her out. And she even has the initial reaction of pulling her sidearms and firing on him again. (laughs) But because he's nigh invincible, he can just stand there and be like, it's okay. Uh, You reacted poorly. Do you need help? Are you okay? That's where we get our little Kuropi Easter egg in the background. Uh, And at the same time, back with Commander Amarau, his stylist has mysteriously changed voices and is asking (laughs) him pointed questions about who he's trying to impress and what he wants his hair to look like. And does he want it to be brown or perhaps... They get into a struggle, start John Woo firing at each other. Oh, that's another uh, John Woo trope is a face-to-face standoff, like two people holding guns directly at each other's faces, Mm -hmm. unable to pull the trigger for whatever reason. I was going to say another thing that's kind of revealed in this dialogue is, so I had been thinking that Amarau was part of Medical Mechanica. You know, when we saw this base that was like located outside of Nabase or whatever, Mm -hmm. that that was supposed to be inside the Medical Mechanica building. But then here he's talking like, He's kind of this third thing, right? So there's Medical Mechanica, there's Haruko, and then I guess she says she's from the Intergalactic Space Police, or he says he's from the Intergalactic Space Police? She's she's from Space Patrol. Okay. And then he's like some sort of like Earth alien, like he's kind of like Men in Black or something like that. And like he's trying to stop her and Medical Mechanica from like destroying the Earth over their fight or something. Yeah, yeah. that sounds about as well as I understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the black and white is like Medical Mechanica's the bad guys, Men in Black are the good guys, and Haruko's the agent of chaos. That makes sense too. But I guess we're supposed to root for Haruko and Nauta, right? Like we're not rooting for Amaral. No. And- Kitsurabami or <laughs> no. I mean, if they are the good guys. When, when I say good guys, I maybe I just mean like the earthbound authority. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm definitely rooting for Kitsurabami. She <laughs> is a professional young woman and she is trying to save the earth, even though her commanding officer is an idiot who's in love with one of their targets. Yeah. Or infatuated. Yeah, so we have our lines drawn, uh, at least, and uh, there are very few... Uh, I guess, alliances of convenience as Haruko and Amarau just start guns a-blazing and Amarau even calls in with the snap of a finger a bunch of shadowy men in black subordinates and so Haruko has to take on an entire squad of and like I feel like the bad guys in uh, John Woo films often have suits on black suits white shirts and lots of guns yeah there's a lot of uh, scenes that almost feel right out of a John Woo movie like um, shooting her guitar gun like a shotgun through the door as two minions are coming through and minions as a group in unison jumping through windows or through ceiling fixtures. <laughs> that was great. What's her uh, guitar ever or gun in any of the other previous episodes? I don't remember that. Does no. it just do whatever she needs it to do? Okay, cool. Yes. Oftentimes she revs it. She like starts it like a lawnmower. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> never cuts grass but yeah i don't know that she ever actually plays a song with it so it's like she uses it for everything <laughs> but music well she was teaching us how to play guitar in one second earlier in the episode <laughs> but it's more about like it's the posturing you do when you play guitar right that's yeah, the important like part it's never like how to play the notes it's yeah. like <laughs> oh i see okay uh and so we get the ending of that scene with uh, Nauta and Mamimi. These scenes kind of cut back and forth between each other. And Mamimi gets kind of fed up with Nauta's answers and ends up shooting him in the back of the head with his own airsoft rifles. He reverts to looking like Kenny from South Park to extend that uh, crossover a little further. Uh, he even has at least one line where it, he sounds like Kenny too. He just like mumbles all of his words. I don't remember what presses the point, but he gets his uh, his mind gun cocks again and he grabs her hand and rushes her towards civilization, like away from the bridge and towards uh, some fancy restaurant, Cafe Bleu. I guess, again, referencing something French as I don't know if they just wanted to cite all their French influences or if there's a, a an emergent theme there. Or maybe blue because... Conti was blue Oh, I'm so dense. Yep, that's exactly what it is. That's why it's Cafe Blue and not like Cafe Blanc. That's great. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, now are you ready, bro? Oh, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Tell me why you don't like Mamimi. Yeah, so uh, Naota uh, is ready to like sort of define the relationship, right? And he wants to make it clear that his affections are towards her and not Haruko. And there's this argument about that. And he's going to make it clear by, you know, having their first kiss. Presumably his actual real first kiss with Haruko wasn't what he wanted. That was just a circumstantial accident. And that sucks if your first kiss means something to you. Uh, so now this would be his first kiss of his choice. And she rejects him. And the feeling I get is that Mamimi is not really interested in him. She's interested in what um, her provocations can do for her. Like she enjoys the flirtatious stuff and being the focal point of his attention. But in terms of real interpersonal affection, that is not of any interest to her. So in my mind, that's manipulative, which was, it was already a manipulative relationship anyway. And I'm sympathetic towards her difficult upbringing and <laughs> the circumstances that she's gone through. But, you know, you're still responsible for your own behavior. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I'm just sympathetic to her. So I was seeing it from her angle. Uh, they were having a discussion about like their relationship or lack thereof and his emerging relationship with Haruko. And instead of sitting there to talk it out, he opted for the action, like actions speak louder than words. I'm going to show you how I feel right now, which is not something that she gave her consent to. And then when he tries to kiss her, it is a almost violent action. He grabs her physically. Mm -hmm. uh, like she doesn't shove him off, but her reticence is, I guess this moment isn't what she wants either. But you're right. She is the older person. And if we can put any onus on someone, I guess in that situation, it would be on her. So 
I mean, well done. <laughs> well, whoa, whoa, wait a second, wait a second. Let's go here. Let's hear it. a new challenger. I mean, so, so, I mean, there is this line when he's taking her to Cafe Blue where she's like, "You're hurting me," like stop or something like that, and like he sort of hears it, but then just like says some non sequitur and like keeps going. And you know, I, I don't think it's as cut and dry as she was never actually interested. I think he was the one kind of, you know, he was embarrassed to be around her with the friends and stuff like that. And so she's more like confused, like, why are you suddenly okay with all this stuff? You know, like, I think there's something else going on here that you're like, not telling me about, or or just that he doesn't really like get where she's coming from and like why she was upset. And so she's she's definitely confused about how she feels about Naota, right? Agreed. If she's confused, then she shouldn't have been pressing her breasts on him in his personal space, having his finger in the waistband of her panties, all the physical draping that they've been doing over each other. Um, he's a 12-year-old in sixth grade. And like, she's already established like their physical relationship. She's like sucking on his earlobe and giving him hickeys. <laughs> yeah, but, but th- that was all already true, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about this episode. That's yeah. in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but kind of serious too. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, like all that stuff is like problematic and we've like talked about that before. But it's a bad situation. I, I feel like now it's like a pretty big dick in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I know that that's definitely like an experience. I think it's especially from being younger, but maybe kind of universal of like, you know, when things are going good your way and then like all of a sudden, like your, your brain takes it a little bit too far mm-hmm. and your mood goes a little too far and you become kind of like insufferable. Yeah. I think he's definitely in that state for a lot of this episode. Yeah. Well, forgive mm-hmm. me for the climb, uh, the, the pun, but this brings us to the climax of the episode. So <laughs> As you're saying, like, so Naoto's immature, and he started receiving praise and recognition. You're really too amazing, Taku. You did it so great last time. That you saved the city? That you did it, Naoto? Huh? Oh, so there was that whole thing with Nina Mori at school? That's right. And everyone says you're controlling that killer robot. Yeah! And there's a mature way to handle that, but he's not a mature person. Mm -hmm. Like, he takes that, and it turns into, you know, this aggressive thing. He's expecting like, oh, we're finally going to become like official or take this relationship to the next level. And then rejection happens. That is what finally sets him off where all these other things only sort of cocked the trigger. Right. And then the way it plays out is very interesting to me. (laughs) Like who becomes the hero in the end? Uh, the confrontation that Naoto and Mamimi have on top of the, the robot. I guess, I don't know if we're ready to talk about that yet or not. Yeah, I'm fine with it. What, did you have any uh, thoughts on the confrontation before we go into the uh, the climax, John? No. Okay. You guys all illustrated it beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> so they're, 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 the friction is mounting. Uh, now to make some bad decisions. Mamimi has already made some bad decisions. And finally, it's too much. The, uh, the pressures are too much. The dialectic has to collapse. And the mind gun doesn't cock. It finally goes off. And we have this <laughs> representative shot another bulge uh, or horn comes out of Nauta's head. This time it's like gigantic. It's 
it's like, yeah, like an overflow. Like it, it won't stop coming. Uh, at, at first, when it hits the ground, it's pretty phallic, but then it's so big that they end up on top of it. And it's like this hundreds of foot tall, giant, we, we assume robot, we can't really see the inner workings yet, but uh, we get a giant trench coat, which the first time I watched this, I was like, oh yeah, just about everything is John Woo except for the robot. And I was wrong. <laughs> this robot is him too. Like a very good action climax uh, or crisis point, at least. This interrupts everybody's day. Uh, we talked about in earlier episodes, the beautiful continuity of things like in this action uh, sequence, not only we do, do we get most of the characters directly involved in it, but anyone who isn't directly involved, uh, we get to see like Gaku Masamune and Nina More in the truck and they end up uh, saving Mamimi. Like she falls into the truck, presumably stopping her from splatting on the ground. And we see usually shells are uh, from uh, yeah, the uh, spent ammunition from guns. Yeah, usually they just disappear in animation. But in this, the giant shells from the giant robot end up being actual hazards that oh, yeah. you have to drive around. It's amazing. Yeah. So they end up on top of this giant robot. And now to, I guess, okay, I guess that he has, I don't know. I don't want to call it healthy because he's very angry. But he takes this, very bad situation and he turns it into standing up for himself right he he establishes a clear and healthy boundary this time right he says don't ever call me takun again maybe he only realizes that it upsets him that it makes him feel bad and it has been doing that this entire time but that's a very smart thing like that's not a healthy thing if you are going to have a relationship with someone like that it would be weird if they called you by your older brother's name constantly that would be like freudian and gross yeah and so he has that wonderful line she's begging for the older brother takun to come save them and he says okay you know what i'm gonna save us don't talk about him. Don't call me his name. And like whistles to get Conti to come down. Maybe just yells his name. And instead of being the reluctant hero, as he has in the past, he's like, I don't want to be any part of this robot fight. This time he opens up Conti's interdimensional mouth and like climbs on in instead of being devoured. And it's, it's wonderful. It's a great manifestation of his growing agency, right? And he advocates for himself. He gets in the robot. Shinji, I want you to pilot this giant robot. Fuck yeah. He gets in the gets robot. In the robot. <laughs> wow. I had the note, Vegeta vibes. Kakurot! I don't know if it was kind of like the animation and his hair, <laughs> but it was like... You know, oh, he short, did have the short, uh, angry dude. And <laughs> I thought it was just the wind from the elevation, but they must have been playing with that imagery, right? Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah I don't remember it well enough, but for some reason that kind of just flashed into my head. <laughs> oh, and I didn't mention it. I guess this happens a little bit earlier than him merging with Conti again, but I wasn't very familiar with this, so I was wondering if you could take us through it. Haruko, she one makes another little penis joke with uh, uh, Amarau. She activates his NO portal, but all she can get out of it is a little tiny like guitar nub, which she ends up using as a slingshot. Uh, <laughs> but she has a transformation here. And I was wondering if you could explain. Oh, me? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has this transformation, which happens off camera, but when she comes back, her outfit is... Oh, yeah. She's the mascot for the Daikon Japanese anime conventions that uh, the animators, who would eventually become Gainax, just as amateur animators, uh, were producing for those conventions. It's like the opening ceremony animation shorts. So, yeah, Daikon uh, is the name of the convention, and they create this character who is, like, wearing this Playboy bunny outfit, and she's running through all these, like, super detailed action choreography scenes with, you know, IPs from every different fandom, not just anime, like tokusatsu stuff, like live Godzilla, Ultraman, everything. And then even uh, Star Wars, right? <laughs> yeah, and Star Trek. Oh, whoa! <laughs> yes, indeed. And I think even some like universal monsters in some of the film shorts, a few of them are on YouTube and they're definitely worth checking out. And um, I just think that what an amazing choice and, and an opportunity, because like these are the only people that could do this in an anime, the ones who originally did those film shorts. And if you're a fan watching this for the first time and boom, like Daikon shows up on screen, you know, riding a guitar like a surfboard and goes through this like elaborate action choreography. And it's like amazing. Like it, it's it's great that they had uh, the mindfulness to be like, yeah, this is exactly what should happen. Uh, and they did it. And it looks great, too. <laughs> I had no idea it was the people that or a lot of the same people that would become Gainax. I didn't realize there was like a direct through line from Daikon to Haruko. Absolutely. So it makes it less referential and more like emergent. Yeah, uh, that's so cool. Definitely. And we're fighting the biggest robot that... <laughs> We've gotten the kind of a die robo uh, in its own way. Definitely. So we get some wonderful aerial shots. She's riding on her guitar, using the tiny guitar as a slingshot. We get the die robo pulling out more and more guns. At first, it's like one shotgun, and then it's a pistol, and then it's several pistols. And we just... <laughs> You start to wonder, like, how many hands does this thing have under there? Until we get probably my favorite shot of the episode, where it turns out not to be a towering figure with many hands. It's just a mass of hands. It's like five giant hands. So it's like hands that make up a mega hand, and each of them has a gun. And it's... Yeah, yeah so, so I was trying to think. So the first episode, there's definitely like a hand that is fighting... Like the last episode, we had like the hand that throws the pitch or whatever. There was the spider thing that's kind of like hand-like. Like we mm -hmm. talked about how it's kind of like pincers or whatever. Oh, like yeah. are, th are they all hands? I was trying to remember what's in two. And Well, John and I have not seen the last episode. So. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know about the last one. But that's a great question. I can't remember who the bad guy is in two. But, but it, I love that it's like wearing a trench coat to hide the fact that it is, it is again a hand, <laughs> a hand and of hands. Her arms and hand. yeah. oh, that's awesome. And, and also it's kind of like the ultimate John Woo too, where it's like, you thought like two pistols was cool. <laughs> Check this out. Like, <laughs> yeah. What would you call that? Uh, penta wielding. Penta. -wielding. penta... <laughs> so yeah, it unfurls. It's five hands, five guns, points them all at Haruko, giant climactic explosion, uh, which knocks her out of the air. And ever the gentleman, Conti, before engaging the giant robo, goes and catches Haruko. And then there's a moment where uh, it seems like Amarau on the ground realizes what's happening 
and uh, gets picked up by Kitsurabami in a little truck and they almost get crushed by uh, one of those huge shells. Mm -hmm. Oh, they team up. Haruko kicks Conti and he transforms, fires Nauta. uh, And he actually does this twice. The second time Nauta is actually deflected by uh, a blue round from one of, I love that it's blue, like coated with that, uh, that robot or angel energy. And he ends up as a, you know, white hot ball of ammunition in a poster for seemingly another John Woo film, right? Yeah. It's like Action Buster 3. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned the like blue angel energy before, but I'm like trying to remember that. So like you said, it was kind of like an Evangelion reference. Like what? what yeah, it's pretty subtle. It's just in Evangelion, they talk about patterns. And uh, if something, if a life form's pattern is blue, that's how they identify it or confirm it as an angel. And so to keep referencing Conti as blue, even though like most shots in the show, I don't think he looks blue at all. Maybe like I have some colorblindness, but he looks teal, which I understand is like a combination of green and blue. I would never be like Conti is blue. I would tell people he's teal and then be like, well, maybe light blue. There's references in the dialogue, but then there's also little color coding references like the shot that the giant robo fires out of its gun to deflect Nauta as a bullet. Nauta is red and the shot it fires is blue. Mm. Would that speak to some sort of disunity? Because previously when Nauta is merged with Conti, it always seemed like the traditional super robot trope, like the kid and the robot and they're acting as one. Uh, In this episode, it seemed like Conti was the one doing things and maybe Naoto was just the bullet. Yeah. We, we saw this with uh, Ivan Kellyan tampering with the formula, right? Of the boy in the mech. Uh, so Shinji was not the traditional uh, super robot hero. And now Naoto seems also not to be like it. At least in this episode, to me, it seemed like Conti was the one, the, the fighter and that Naoto was just the instrument. Yeah, he's like the power source almost. Yeah, that's a huge play on that, the super robot trope. Hmm. Oh my gosh, we have to talk about super robots so much more because the old super robot tropes being like uh, supplanted by more realistic, more visceral, less propagandistic like iterations of this like as you have a a growing audience that still wants the same kind of content you have to make it more realistic you have to make it still applicable to their lives and like there's so many holes in uh the super robot and man it's kind of the same way in america right with superheroes oh yeah as audiences grew up with superman and batman and captain america at first they were look at how amazing this is but eventually the audiences wanted a reason for it or uh realistic extrapolations on what that would actually mean so i guess this is kind of like Uh, We got the dark age of comic books where everything seemed to get super gritty and super like this is what problems that superpowered beings would cause in the world. It's almost like uh, the 90s into the 2000s is a similar era in anime with like the advent of Neon Genesis. More and more shows wanted to say, well, actually, robots would be bad. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I I feel like the first iteration is always kind of like 
really like ancient myths and stuff like that, right? Like I feel like a lot of times in those stories, it's just like there was this guy and he was like awesome and he was like the best <laughs> fighter out of all the fighters. And uh, then there was a giant and he like fought the giant and it was crazy and he won. And like, like, like there's something about those kinds of stories that really like draws to them. And I feel like especially when you're really young, it's just like, oh, that's like the awesomest story. Like the story about like the guy who's like the best fighter. But yeah, I don't know. You like hear that story enough times and you're just kind of like, all right, I get it. Like, (laughs) and then I feel like, yeah, shows like this are more like just kind of taking the idea of mechs and then just coming up with, you know, a different kind of story around it. Right. Yeah. Cause once you've established the language, like, the stories we're going through now, they require those old stories to have been told, right? Because you have to establish the tropes in order to subvert them. You have to make the language before you can make iterations on it. Yeah. So that when you just see the giant robot, you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. And I think as people hear the stories more and more, they relate to your life less and less. And so I think eventually we want stories to relate to our own lives in a transition period where eventually we want to tell our own stories. It's kind of weird thinking about it too, as this like anime. And I think one of the things that's always interested as like an American watching anime is that like, it never completely relates to your own life. Like even the kind of everyday stuff there feels like it's kind of some fantasy world or something like that. Like everything's like a little slightly different. Like even the school bell that starts the the morning for Japanese students is like a nice little chime where ours is like a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that that, like at least for me, was part of the appeal. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. I agree with you. It makes it more interesting just having these little idiosyncrasies that happen because it's a Japanese culture. Uh, yeah, if I had to put words to it, I would say that it's interesting because it gives you a, a surface to p- apply your friction to, right? Let's say you're watching like equivalent, I guess, age appropriateness things. You watch like an uh, American or English language thing. Well, let's say American because we all grew up in America. You're watching an American, uh, let's say, slice of life show. You have fewer things to wonder about as opposed to the same level of subject matter in a Japanese show or, or anime, um, you just have far more little things to wonder about thinking like, Oh, is that normal? Or what are these characters? And so, uh, maybe the reason that, uh, we enjoy these so much is because it's more engaging to our brains. Like, even if we don't get it as much, our brains are working harder to try to get it. Uh, And so we feel less like an observer and more like a participant in the art. Yeah, because there's just so much more to learn that's foreign, right? Like, it definitely keeps you more engaged. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess the question is kind of like, if this were an American-made thing set in the U.S. and like, you know, aside from the cultural references, everything were the same. I mean, I think I would still really, really loved it. (laughs) It would just be like a very... I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how that would, how I would have experienced it differently, I guess. And in some ways, it's just like, it feels like it's such a different thread in animation that just like, there's no way that would have come out of the US, um, you know, especially at that time. 
Yeah, or through commercial studios, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, and yeah, like, you're right. Like, there's the confluence of funding, like, the the funding that was available to Japanese studios that wanted to do this kinds of work was still scarce, but far freer than it would have been in America. Because like you're saying, John, like in America, uh, you had Disney <laughs> Hello, kids. and Warner Brothers. And watch up, Doc. And if you weren't part of those two, you had to scrape it all together. And Ralph Bosky, to bring it all a little full circle, like you saw, or at least the stuff that I've uh, seen of him, the interviews and his own work, like uh, he does wonderful stuff and he does, he makes animation that is not for children. It is for adults. It is f- to be considered. It, he thinks it's an art form. And, you know, I tend to agree with him. I think everyone here would, but every step of the way he had to fight for funding. Mm. He had to, even wizards, there's this little anecdote about, uh, Wizards and Star Wars were set to come out the same year and Wizards was originally titled War Wizards and George Lucas actually came into Ralph Bosky's office and said hey can you change the title of your movie because the studio does not want to put out two movies in the same year that have war in the title and if you take war out of your title it's still Wizards but if I take war out of my title it's just Star so <laughs> help me out here. And he did. He, he, oh, wow. Ralph Boxy like helped him out. So Star Wars wouldn't be what it was without, you know, the influence of animation. <laughs> well, I hope he got something out of it. <laughs> Probably not. Ugh. He should have been like, no, I'm keeping my title. <laughs> Star, a new hope. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. So Conti with Haruko in his embrace. Uh, and with Commander Am- Amaral and uh, Kitsurabami on the ground lamenting that this could be it. They think the giant robo is going to activate the medical mechanica, the big uh, uh, steam iron facility. Then Conti emits this beam of light from his TV face and then grabs it, this awesome, like, the immaterial becoming material. And he pulls out, well, obviously it shouldn't be surprising to us at this point, but another guitar. Not just any guitar, right? Both Amaral on the ground and Haruko, they both simultaneously it's remark that it is uh, Atomus at Gibson EB0 EB uh, 1961 model. A friend of the show told me that that is a famous model. I don't know if it's for any particular reason, like, but a lot of industry professionals, a lot of big name bands have really liked that one. And there's two models produced that year uh, of that EB0. And the one that we're seeing is after a remodeling. And then he promptly uses that guitar to finish the fight. And then we get this amazing shot that means something completely different referentially to me as an adult. Uh, the giant robo, it its visor gets smashed apart and we can see that behind the visor is actually one mono eye, which I thought might be a reference again to Gundam. The, oh, yeah. the Xeon mobile suits usually have only a mono eye. And then as it crashes to the ground, it reemerges up as the hand, but it turns to stone. And as it turns to stone, it shifts into like a person's hand, like a realistic hand. And I just wonder whose hand is that? (laughs) Because there is a number of, I don't know, media that I've consumed since I was a child that 
the hand is oftentimes the hand of the creator. It's allegorical for uh, the writer or the artist or whatnot. And now this hand of the creator is poised to pull the plug or have this climax. Yeah, like activate the iron and (laughs) smooth out all the wrinkles. But it's also got this hole in it. Like it's been wounded by its own creation, which is just wild. There's a part uh, where eyebrows said, he is the real pirate king. I am the lizard queen. What does that mean? Atomsk. Uh, yeah, Atomsk, this being that we haven't met yet, but Conti has kind of been referred to as Atomsk. Right. I followed that. Where's Pirate King coming to it? Yeah, that's what he is. He's the Pirate King, which I think yeah. is a is a reference to the big titles that a lot of characters would get in maybe Japanese culture as a whole, but specifically anime. Uh, I was thinking of rock and roll titles like Jim Morrison, The Lizard King. King of pop, king of rock, all that stuff. I just went to the FLCO wiki and they have a picture of like sketches of Adams. And I I don't know if this is from Progressive in the later series. Definitely he's a bird man. (laughs) I had no idea. Bird man. So do you think it means anything that like this hand mech was like pierced like stigmata style or Christ imagery? It's definitely like that. Yeah, it's maybe not obvious, but popped to my mind um, whenever you get a hole in a hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I forget where this is from. Um, There's a little bit of spoilers uh, for the next episode. Spoilers. 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 <laughs> but, but so we do get this kind of like more realistically rendered hand. And supposedly that is literally the director whose name I'm blanking on. They used his hand as the, the model for that hand. Oh, really? Um, and so that might be the one that we saw briefly at the end of this episode. And he, in one of those Otacon interviews, you know, like I do think that this is like multivalent, like there's multiple meanings to a lot of these like images and and stuff like that. But he spoke about the robots coming out of Nauta's head as like his own ideas and all of the trouble that he was putting the animation staff through because of these stupid things that were like coming out of his head. So I think that that kind of jibes well with the stuff you're saying, Alex, about then, you know, like him fighting with his characters and his characters hurting him. And and maybe that is kind of one of the meanings is like the the artist's struggle to to make these stories happen or something. Ben, yeah, it's also uh, an example of that. I think you and Brian had both brought it up a couple of times in our last season this, I don't know if it's a, a writing device or a, a phenomenon when, an, uh, when a writer feels that their characters will no longer do what they want them to do. Like the characters are taking over a life of their own and they can't make them go where they thought the story was going to go. And now I'm just free associating and maybe that's kind of also like in this story you know, people feel that way about other people, right? That maybe like Mimimi kind of thought she was in control of Nauta and now he's not doing the things that she wanted him to do. Oh, yeah. You know, in our lives, we turn other people into these characters, but then they end up doing stuff that we don't expect. Oh, yeah. 
That's interesting. Hell of a free association. There's a precedent for that, right? Uh, so Surumaki, our director of Furfuli Kuli, I mean, he had a lot of creative collaboration with Anno for Evangelion. I mean, Anno is usually attributed to the one having the existential crisis, but I, I think it was a shared experience based on what I've heard for most of Gainax. Wow. Yeah, just leave it to anime to tie the cosmic or giant robot thing back down to the street level slice of life conflict that's also happening. Like, that's beautiful. Hmm. That's it, right? We get uh, we get a sad shot of Nauta. He reverts to human form down on the ground and then... Haruko lands uh, heels first on top of him. (laughs) And she has a little swoon moment where she's in the arms of Conti and she has lights all around them and she thinks, Atomusk. And then we have our next episode coming up. So I feel like there's a lot that happens in these last last 30 seconds, right? So like uh, the mech gets put down. Uh, There's something that looks like it's ejected out of the middle of the hand. Mm. Yeah. And then of course, you know, You've mentioned before uh, about Naota being the uh, ordinance that Conti is firing out of his cannon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we finally get the visual confirmation of that. That's really interesting. And then this uh, phenomenon of uh, Haruko recognizing Conti as Atomisk has a lot of interesting implications for me. And, and I guess, so when we see Nauta kind of emerge from being this ball, you know, these friends that were so impressed with him yes. for saving the town, like uh-huh. are disgusted by it. And then, you know, Haruko steps on his back too. <laughs> it's it's a good uh, resolution to that arc of his bridges getting too big, I think. Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> This humiliation. And even with all the huge guns in it, even Nina Mori gets the final shot of the episode where she just uses her little squirt gun to cool Nauta off. <laughs> yes, they brought it full circle. <laughs> yeah, so uh, where does that leave Nauta? Like he had some newfound self-worth and maybe he took it too far. Hard lessons to learn. So can anybody relate to Naota? Does anybody have any anecdotes they want to share about uh, your formative years and having a win under your belt and maybe going to your head and having maybe a a moral failure or an error in judgment? (laughs) (laughs) It is a great question. It's just a big one. Uh, I had not prepared for that. I don't know if I've ever had a win under my belt during my formative (laughs) years. I I had a crush on this girl in eighth grade and uh, it turned out I had a mutual friend who put in a good word and we ended up like becoming official boyfriend and girlfriend. And, you know, I was feeling like the dude, the dude you know, the big man. And um, the three of us were hanging out and our mutual friend was kind of making this positive comment. It was like, Hey, you know, I helped you guys get together. And uh, I guess in my er- immature mind, uh, that was like stealing some of my glory that I was enjoying. And I was like, whatever, you know, like, like I landed this win because I'm so friggin' awesome. And then she broke up with me the next day. <laughs> and good for her. <laughs> You've become a much bigger man since then. <laughs> no, I don't have anything. I mean, I'm sure I you do. You guys gonna leave me hanging? But yeah. Not that I. Yes. Thanks for sharing, Brian. <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to submit this question in writing, <laughs> for well, well, I'm going to find out who Ben's middle school buddies were. Oh, that was me as well. <laughs> so next week on Pen Pen Pals. <laughs> yeah, amazing. 
The only final thought I had was as another testament to putting the effort where it is most useful and perhaps most surprising. Usually transformations in anime are actually a way to save budget, right? Because it's 30 seconds or a minute of runtime that you can use over uh, in almost every episode. But in this one, instead of reusing any footage of uh, the Conti Atomisk transformation, uh, when Nauta does like it's a shorter transformation this time but when he calls him and they fuse it's all completely fresh animation like all just for this episode yeah, and it looks great too this weird organic thing like the eyeballs that come out of conti's chest and his <laughs> limbs are sticking out between the teeth <laughs> it's great yeah anybody else have any other uh closing thoughts or wrap-ups or anything they want to get off their chest <laughs> I think that the the pillows killed it. I think they kill oh, it yeah. every episode. It's so good. Yeah. Do you have any favorite uh, uh, songs from their work on this, or uh, are there any songs that you remember uh, hearing when you were younger and really being blown away by? Or, or like a particular point in this episode? There was like a bass line. I can't remember where it happened though, but it's really sweet. And then I always loved the ending song. I could listen to that over and over and over. <laughs> mm-hmm. over. The riding shooting star, it's so good. Uh, I, I really like the part where it's like one of the final guitar hits and it's like really loud in the music, but there's this like drone going on that kind of like, it feels like it's like the point in the song where someone would like smash their guitar or something like that. Mm. I guess my uh, last question for John is, uh, do you remember that time when Alex was in middle school and he had that win under his belt and he got a little <laughs> too arrogant? <laughs> And had that humiliating no. mistake. <laughs> no. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> For the listeners, Alex is making like very menacing, threatening. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love those visual gags. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Uh, I can never remember what order we established, so I think it's going to be different on every episode. So, does either of you want to start it? It's Ben's turn to go first. All right. Uh, pen. Pen. Pals. Booty goody. Okay, good. 